What's up, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. No, 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 Show me the meaning! My name is Jared. I'm joined here with the Show Me the Meaning crew. We got Ryan. What up, film fans? What's up? And Tommy. Hey. So today we're breaking down The Dark Knight Rises, the 2012 film directed by Christopher Nolan, starring Christian Bale, Tom Hardy, and Anne Hathaway. Uh, but before we go into initial reactions, I want to get to a couple things up top. Uh, the first thing I want to mention is, well... It's some unfortunate news, but nothing too serious. So Austin, who everyone knows has been on this podcast, uh, is actually in the hospital right now. Um, he had a collapsed oh, a, no. a collapsed lung. Uh, he went through surgery this morning. He's okay. But I wanted to have him on this podcast, uh, but he's in the hospital. But if, if everyone could, if you follow him on Twitter, if you guys are active on Twitter, just send him a well wishes message at Austin underscore Hayden, H-A-Y-D-E-N. That would mean a lot. Um Everything is okay. He's fine. He'll be back on his feet maybe in a couple weeks. But uh, it was a little bit of a scare for a while. And, and what happened, if you don't mind me asking? He, it, I don't think it was any like particular strenuous movement. I've only we've only been messaging. He only told me some vagaries. But he's had a collapsed lung in the past, and now it happened again, and they had to do some surgery. But that's all I know. But I know that he's okay. Oh, okay. All right. Good. Yeah. We're, so we're, now we're rooting for you, Austin. Yeah. Also, want to remind everybody that Wisecrack is now doing articles. You can hit us up at medium.com slash Wisecrack. We now have a partnership with Medium, and we've been working really hard to do three articles a week, which is a lot more content than we're used to doing. So <laughs> subscribe to the publication at medium.com slash Wisecrack. And the last thing I want to bring up is that South Park comes back August 25th. No, excuse me, September 25th, and it's one of my favorite shows, and we're going to be bringing back our South Park podcast, Respect Our Authorita. So search for that on iTunes, subscribe to that, and join us as we break down maybe the best social satire on television. Same <laughs> fucking uh, men, baby. But, but, all right, so enough with the announcements. Let's get some initial reactions. What was it like the first time you watched The Dark Knight Rises, and what is it like revisiting it? Let's start with Ryan. Oh, God. I knew you were going to start with me. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. I, I This is one of those films you really have to evaluate it, in my opinion, on two different criteria. A, how good of a movie is it? And then B, th did it live up to its other previous movies? I'll go with the second one first because that's more important to me. This movie, in my opinion, is the biggest disappointment in my lifetime mm. cinematically. Right? Like... The, the expectations I had were so sky high. And yeah, I'm not expecting, you know, it's I'm, honestly, they were impossible to meet after the Dark Knight. Uh, and especially once uh, fucking Heath Ledger was dead, it's kind of like, okay, where can they possibly go from here? And I really do think that Heath Ledger dying contributed to this movie sucking so bad, um, which is not anyone's fault. But it, 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 this movie just, I thought, from, it, it really lost me uh <laughs> i'm trying to sorry i'm trying it's, this is hard to articulate because uh of all the the seven years of rage that uh that has been living on i jared didn't we see this together i know i don't know i went to the midnight screening in full costume mm. dressed as bane okay yeah <laughs> no, no, no. That, that's how excited i was all I'm i was I, I was at the art i really don't like this movie i think it's over long over complicated when and and a terrible like finale to the amazing buildup we had uh, uh, with the Dark Knight, D Bane is the shittier villain. You can't fucking understand him, uh, uh, which I do think matters. <laughs> um, and just all in all, I, I yeah, I thought it was, they went way too heavy on the philosophy and exposition 
and whatnot, and way not enough on the cool, whatever they did in The Dark Knight, they didn't do it in this movie. And <laughs> so, I don't know. I'm excited yeah. to talk about that, I guess. Fuck this, All right. Fuck this movie. All right, Tommy. What do you, Tommy? What do you think? <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> well, I think as as Ryan alluded to, there was so much hype going into this movie the first time around, and uh, I I remember the first time I saw this movie, I I didn't love it, but I didn't hate it. I I, I actually I actually liked the movie. I didn't like it as much as Dark Knight. I didn't like it as much as Batman Begins, and it was disappointing. But I still sort of overall, I had sort of a a, a decent feeling about the movie. Um, this second time around, though, um, I actually like it more good somebody <laughs> then, has to uh, i'm glad to hear that and then uh then the first time i saw it um i actually think the first half of this movie is pretty great have you only uh, seen it twice i've seen it twice this is my second time seeing it wow. and uh the first half of this movie right up until the batman bane first fight in when he break when he breaks batman i think everything up to that is great and i think that fight scene is the best is one of the best scenes in the entire series uh i just love it so much it's so dark it's so weird uh and i actually really like bane um but I think after that, the movie begins to lose steam and then it becomes very convoluted and uh, it has the longest ticking clock in the history of cinema. Uh, <laughs> Five months. <laughs> it, it, like it strains credibility. I mean, it's literally just there because the Nolans wrote themselves into a corner uh, and they need Batman to get better in time to save the day in the end. But, uh, but I still sort of like this movie a little bit. Uh, it's thematically confused, um, but yeah. overall... I, I enjoy it, uh, and I actually think it's a decent ending for the series. Overall. Yeah, I'm really glad to hear you say that, because I didn't want this podcast to be a total downer, because I know there are some big fans of this movie. Uh, I This was similarly the biggest movie of my life at the point I was looking forward to it so much. I was on, like, BatmanFans.net forums <laughs> every day leading up to this fucking movie, because The Dark Knight was my favorite movie of all time up until that at that time of my life. I made a fucking Bane costume dressed up, midnight showing, um, and to be honest, the first time I saw the movie, I immediately did not like it, and I was so depressed that I walked home from the theater instead of taking the Metro, which I usually did, and so at three in the morning on <laughs> on July 20th, 2012, I was basically doing the Charlie Brown walk, dressed as Bane, walking through Hollywood with my, with, my, with my head sloped down. I don't know, man. This movie... I agree. There's some great things about it. I like the IMAX. I like the practical effects shots. I like the insane number of extras in the final scene and the fact that Nolan wanted to make a David Lean-style epic. Awesome. I like. I think Tom Hardy is great. I think the design of the pit is awesome. I think the how Nolan adapted the Lazarus pit of Ra's al Ghul and turned it into this prison that you have to like kind of quote unquote resurrect yourself from in order to escape and in order to for Batman to get better again was like really clever. And I think that the adaptation of A Tale of Two Cities is some of the smartest stuff in the series. But yeah, it's very thematically confused. There's too much going on. There's too many characters. It's overlong, and it is a bit of a disappointment to me. And, and, you know, I think a lot of this has to do with my expectations. My theory was that the first movie was all David Goyer, and that that's why, like, the movie had very much this political slant to it. It was all about kind of terrorism. And then the second mm -hmm. movie, I in my head you know, was all Jonathan Nolan, the real genius. And he had brought this whole existential slant to The Dark Knight and that you could read the first two films 
politically as reflecting on terrorism, but I was always resisting that reading. I wanted it to be more like The Dark Knight, more existential, or at least that that particular reading of The Dark Knight. So I really wanted The Dark Knight Rises to continue on with these more universal, humanitarian, existential themes, but really it doubled down on the politics more than ever, and that wasn't really what I wanted, so that's part of the disappointment, but we'll get into it. Uh, so yeah, ultimately this movie's a disappointment for me, but in ensuing viewings, I've come to appreciate the ambition and like certain elements of it, but overall, this is the installment that keeps it from being, you know, like one of the great all-time, I mean, it's still maybe mm-hmm. one of the great all-time trilogies, but like from climbing to the very top of that list, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I- this movie absolutely nullifies it from the greatest trilogies, uh, <laughs> in my opinion. All right, let's go into a recap, which, by the way, this is one of the hardest recaps to write because there's so much How going How on. long is this recap going to be, Jared? It's long. I, mean, I don't know what to tell you. All right. So it's been eight years since Batman has been seen, and Gotham is in a period of peace brought on by the Dent Act, a law that's given the Gotham police more power to fight crime, effectively filling Blackgate Prison. Yet, things may not be as hunky-dory as they seem. Cat burglar Selina Kyle infiltrates Bruce Wayne's mansion and steals his fingerprints, and there have been whispers of an underground city led by a masked mercenary named Bane. When Commissioner Gordon is injured investigating the tunnels, police officer John Blake approaches Wayne and tells him that he knows he's the Batman and that Gotham needs him. Meanwhile, philanthropist Miranda Tate seeks an audience with Wayne to revive a failed world-saving fusion energy machine that she commissioned. In an effort to get a clean slate, Selina gives the fingerprints to Wayne's business rival Daggett, who teams up with Bane to storm the stock exchange and strip Wayne of control over Wayne Enterprises, causing Wayne to once again don the cape and cowl. With Wayne now broke and Daggett betrayed by Bane, Selina Kyle leads Batman to Bane, where he reveals himself to be the successor of Ra's al Ghul, here to destroy Gotham. He breaks Batman's back and traps him in a pit where he will torture him with hope of escaping the pit while broadcasting Gotham's slow decay under his rule. Back in Gotham, Bane takes the core out of the fusion energy machine, turns it into a nuclear bomb, and tells the citizens of Gotham that the people now have the power to rise up and overthrow the rich because he's given the detonator to an anonymous citizen. In reality, the bomb will go off in five months anyway, and he's just messing with them. Bane then reveals the truth about Harvey Dent, and chaos ensues. Wayne beasts through the pain, recovers, escapes the pit, and heads back to Gotham where he teams up with Selina to defeat Bane and take back the bomb. Miranda Tate reveals herself to be the daughter of Ra's al Ghul, and with only seconds left to get the bomb out of the city, Batman straps it to his Batplane and flies it to the ocean, where it explodes, and presumably him with it. Gotham rebuilds and erects a statue commemorating Batman's sacrifice. Alfred goes to Florence, where he sees Wayne with Kyle living their best life. In the final scene, Blake is given access to the Batcave, where presumably he becomes the new Batman, or Robin. End of movie. All right, guys, before we move on, I want to give a shout out to our sponsors over at Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community with thousands of awesome classes covering dozens of creative and entrepreneurial skills. You can take classes in everything from photography and creative writing to design, productivity, and more. So whether you're returning to a longtime passion project, challenging yourself to get outside your comfort zone, or simply exploring something new, Skillshare has classes for you. 
So I talked about this class that I took a couple weeks ago, the Writer's Toolkit, Six Successful Steps to a Successful Writing Habit. It's actually six steps to a successful writing habit. I wrote down the word successful twice. But it's by a screenwriter named Simon Van Bowie, and he gives you six essential steps to basically make yourself a better writer, not necessarily in the the actual craft of writing. Now, they have classes on that too, but just in getting yourself actually writing. So two things that he talks about that were really helpful for me. He talks about setting the conditions. So for some, that may be a cup of coffee or a cigarette or something like that, something that like makes it a ritual that allows you to write. For me, it's exercise. He also emphasizes uh, writing exercises, so something that gets your brain working before you actually start writing. So something that I do is I use a random photo generator on the internet, and so I'll just use a a random photo generator and a photo will just pop up and I'll tell myself that I have to create like a log line or a story based on this photo. And it kind of just keeps your mind limber. So you can join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for Show Me the Meaning listeners, two free months. So you get two free months of unlimited access to thousands of classes for free. Go to Skillshare.com slash Wisecrack. Again, Skillshare.com slash Wisecrack to get two free months. And now back to the show. Jared, real quick, can I touch on one big reason why I hate this movie? Yeah, go for <laughs> it. You, you kind of touched on it, Tommy. It's just that the entire third act to me is completely devoid of all drama because you know that you know that scene in like james bond movies where like the the villain has him dead to rights and then he's explaining his his plan and then james bond gets out in that moment and it's like you're always like all right this is kind of bullshit but it's a movie Uh to me that's like literally the whole third act because him putting him in that prison when he has broken his back he has batman his biggest nemesis dead basically or he can kill him at any moment and he just leaves him there in that whole bullshit ludicrous thing of <laughs> well i can't he he has to have hope i can't ruin his hope he can maybe get out of this hole i thought was just so <sighs> had no dramatic stakes why would anyone do this you know and then of course it comes back to beat bane, uh you know bite bane in the ass so to me I, that really made me hate the movie a lot more it's there there it it's the time frame that really sort of bugs me like i mean he's trying to destroy his spirit so he's like i'm going to i'm not going to kill you batman i'm going to force i'm going to make you watch your city burn uh but the, the it's the time frame of 5 months like the like gotham city is destroyed within 2 weeks and, and then the, he just has this bomb that's going to set in 5 months uh it right. just it just it's literally just for screenwriting because they've broken batman broken bruce's back they can't get up in a week and then fight Bane again. I mean, he you can't needs, get up in five months and fight that's Bane again. E- that's even straining. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So they, they they put themselves in a hole and like this is the solution to that hole. It's like it's gonna blow up in five months. Uh, it's it's very iffy. It's yeah. yeah. Don't put yourself in that hole. You're good yeah. writers. Come on. <laughs> But I do like that Batman is weakened midway through this movie. That's cool. Uh, I really I, that is really cool. Uh, but yeah, everything after that is a real. Is a real st- I don't think you need the bomb. Like him destroying the city uh, is 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 enough. I think. Uh, I don't know. I, I the bomb is literally there for like a ticking clock at the very at the end of this movie. So Batman has something to save and stop. Right. Uh, but yeah. Usually, I don't get caught up in what I call little annoying shit like plot holes and it's stuff. Not a, it's not. But a, it's more like yeah, it's more of a convenience. I, I don't. I don't. But but then. there are things that bother me in this movie. So, so convenient. 
How is it that anybody... I'm just going to go through a couple of them. I don't want to belabor this, though. But how does anybody believe that Wayne gambled away the... F- the fortune that his fortune on futures when Bain <laughs> infiltrated the stock exchange in a very widely publicized attack. That doesn't make sense. I really don't like that Razal Ghoul comes back. I hate that like Bain is pretty much because we have this character, Bain, who is supposedly a social revolutionary. We're gonna get to that. I really don't like how the revolution seems to just be this ruse that is nullified of any actual meaning because he's just, I guess, just fucking with Gotham. He's trying to do to Gotham what he does to Batman, which is give them hope that their situation will get better and then kill them. I don't really see why. I don't see the point of that. But what is but, the hope he's giving them? That's my issue. Like uh, he's, that you'll he's locked them, them into a city. Uh, I mean, they don't know there's a bomb that's going to detonate. But like, what is the hope that he's yeah. that he's projecting? But I just don't like that Ra's al Ghul is the villainous figure in this movie. It's like. Return of the Jedi, rebuilding the Death Star. Like, stop it. You don't need to do that. It doesn't need to bookend like that. Yes, exactly. Another thing that bothers me is how does Blake become Batman? Remember in The Dark Knight when Batman says to the copycats that the thing separating him from them is that, quote, he's not wearing hockey pads? You know what part I'm talking Mm -hmm. about? I never thought he was actually being literal, that the only difference between them was technology. In my mind, when I watch The Dark Knight, I think that he meant that there's a certain adherence to an ideology, a certain training that makes him worthy to do these things. He's curating a symbol that strikes fear. Not anyone can just do that. But this whole thing with him giving it, giving Blake the Batcave and him actually saying to Blake that the idea was always that anyone could, became, could become Batman rang totally untrue to me. Right, not everyone uh, else uh, was, you know, uh, went through all that training over in the Middle East, you know? Yeah. It does feel like his criteria is you're an orphan too, so thus. You're an angry <laughs> you're orphan an... just like me. I, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know. Um, last thing I'll say, I just want to go through, when I say that there's so much going on in this movie, there is a lot. There are so many arcs in this movie that even having seen this movie, I've seen this movie probably like four or five times. Every time I forget, oh, yeah, this is in the movie because there are these arcs that are literally given maybe three minutes total of screen time. So there's there's a short arc with Officer Foley, which is the guy who plays what's the he plays Joker in um, Full Metal Jacket. Um, oh, you mean Matthew Modine's character? Yeah, Matthew in this? Modine's yeah. character. He starts out as like a Dentian anti-Batman zealot, and then when the city turns to shit, he becomes apathetic. Then inspired by Batman, he dies protecting the city. This all happens so quickly that I feel nothing from this arc. I'm just glad to see Modine on the screen. Well, me too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, me too. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Let me right. break down some of these subplots. <laughs> There's Blake saving orphans in the Wayne Foundation. There's Catwoman needing a clean <laughs> slate. There's uh, the thing with Bane being the child who climbed the pit, but then it ended up being actually Talia al Ghul. There's Gordon's guilt for lying about Dent, which also doesn't make any sense to me. Why Why is he guilty for lying about Harvey Dent? The Dent Act is supposedly good, or at least it seems good. We're not given any evidence that it's not. Daggett is trying to take over Wayne, but that just being part of Talia's plans. Catwoman having an affair with the senator and using him. Batman and Talia's tragic love story that then becomes a real love story between Catwoman and Batman. Bruce's failed save the world fusion machine. The Batplane's broken autopilot. Catwoman being dissatisfied with the outcome of the revolution. There is so much going on in this movie. There's a lot going on. (laughs) 
I also I, I I don't like the statue at the end. The statue at the end really bothers me because to me, Batman is supposed to be John Wayne in the final shot of the Searchers. Yeah, my issue with it is that like thematically, the whole movie is about how the truth will set you free. That seems to be sort of the thing they're getting at. Like it's I the, think it's, it's the opposite. You know, but yeah, that's the thing. At the end, it's it's the lie. They create. They just create another, another lie. lie. Yeah. <laughs> so like, what are we doing? No, that's why there, there has been a lot written about this movie, and especially when the movie came out for years there were a lot of mostly political commentators basically saying that they hate this movie hmm. because they see it as being um like uh, authoritarian oh. in the fact that batman has to always curate the truth in order for there to be you know someone better <laughs> than the unwashed masses has to curate the truth well super left-wing yeah. commentators were right-wing commentators really like this movie <laughs> yes that's true yeah definitely we, and, and we, we'll get into that a little bit, but uh, all right, let's start talking. Let's start off talking about, uh, I don't know, we got we got the Dent Act, we got Truth, we got Pain, A Tale of Two Cities. What do you guys want to start with? Dealer's Choice. Yeah. Dealer's Choice. Go for it, Jared. All right, let's talk about the Dent Act. Um, I, what really bothers me about this is you would think that if Commissioner Gordon, who has always been a character who is this moral exemplar, someone that we always identify with, someone who we always see as having the best of intentions, if he has this deep-seated guilt about lying about Harvey Dent, scapegoating Batman, and in, and enacting the Dent Act, why don't we see any evidence of if this is in fact corrupt? And then the other problem is, how is it that the Dent Act trans or or if when bane tells the people outside of blackgate prison which i which is essentially supposed to be the bastille from the french revolution that hey harvey dent was actually a bad person and commissioner gordon lied therefore you should overthrow the rich i don't get it <laughs> i mean that part is it strains but i, I think it, it it goes to his character i think it's like this great thing has happened from this lie but he is holding this secret and it is rotting at his insides it's, it's that kind of thing it's his own sort of personal you know want to be the moral center of this movie versus the the impact that it actually has on the world outside so just the fact that it was a lie he, i think he, that's he, it it's like it's that it's this it's that the fact that it's a lie that hurts him but when Blake tells him, when Bane says to everybody, Dent is a false idol, and then Blake says to uh, to Commissioner Gordon, he says, your hands are, seems like your hands are pretty dirty. Mm -hmm. Just he, in the fact that he lied. Yeah, just, well, my yeah. other thing is, why does anybody believe Bane? He's just some guy reading off well, a piece of paper. <laughs> that's fair. I, yeah. I had that exact same thought. I'm like, in today's age, everybody would be like, this is fake news. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like 100%. Uh, yeah, of course <laughs> yeah. he has a prepared speech by the police commissioner in his pocket that he pulls out that apparently says that everything the whole society has believed in is a lie. Like, of course they would believe that. <laughs> well, right. That, I mean, it, that, that is a big lie, though, to continue to, to uphold a monster, you know, uh, as this god. But Commissioner Gordon's whole thing has always been, how do I get this city under control? Mm -hmm. And it's given to him. But at what cost, Jared? At it what just, cost? Oh, oh, you're telling me that Commissioner Gordon has never lied once in his whole career? <laughs> well, like, I haven't. I not in any other movie. It's just not believable. <laughs> the only things that we see is that Blackgate is overcrowded. Mm -hmm. And, and to, to Nolan's credit, I really think that he, my guess is that 
in the tradition of a David Lean movie, he just wants epic shots. He wanted to look, he wants it to look great visually, and I think that in some cases he really does communicate a lot of things visually, and it's a lot of times it's visually stunning. And he's probably not worried about I this think, messy world building as yeah, much. I think it's a great looking movie, and I really like how he. If we're just talking aesthetics, I like how he cuts into scenes. Like uh, normally, you have characters entering into spaces, but he'll just cut to like a person. Like the character's already there. The two characters are already mid conversation, and I really appreciate that. Um, it's something he does in a lot of his other films, but mm-hmm. it's 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 good. Yeah. Um. All right, so let's talk more about the truth. Alfred says, maybe it's time we stop trying to outsmart the truth and let it have its day. But to your point, that doesn't happen. (laughs) Or when it does, it seems like things only get worse. So Alfred tells him the truth that Rachel chose Dent, and then he just goes further into his suicide mission. But this frees him to have a relationship with Talia and then Catwoman in the end. He's he's harboring these these feelings. The truth does set him free, ultimately. Yeah, okay. Do you buy that, Ryan? I see what you're saying, but... I mean, that's what's so weird about this movie is that I do think it argues that the truth does set us free, but then it ends with uh, a lie. What what are some of the other things that make you think that it says that the truth sets us free? I mean, I feel like, you know, well, Batman was a fugitive, first of all. He was... was thought of as the guy who killed Harvey Dent and now he's idolized in the end once 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 the secret of Harvey Dent comes out now we idolize Batman like we should idolize him and an order is restored to guard to Gotham via telling the truth they don't have to have this lie anymore in order to have you know you know not chaos in the city we see in the end that the city is perfectly fine and now they have Batman as their statue well hold on you could argue that the statue at the end is also a lie because it's nope, that's the weird thing about it yeah. right okay <laughs> so yeah I, yeah i i don't know what the movie's saying either <laughs> okay i don't know what it's saying about truth okay yeah i it does seem okay. to be very torn yeah <laughs> yeah I, I i don't really know what to say <laughs> other than it just seems a little bit muddled and I, you know, it's weird. Like, I go into this movie with a bias that I think that, oh, okay, it. the theme in most Hollywood movies is that the truth is a good thing. The truth will set you free. Yes. But I think that most of the evidence – and I think that there's a, a valid argument to be made that, you know, I mean, the end of The Dark Knight is essentially that the truth will not set you free. The truth needs to be inhibited for the greater good. And, and I would expect that that theme would develop and maybe change. But really, it's just, you know, it bends a little bit. We see what happens when the truth comes out. But I would argue that you made a good point with the uh, allowing him to get in another relationship thing. I think that that subplot doesn't really work that well. It doesn't. Neither, I mean, when, when he kisses Catwoman, uh, I'm like, where did that come I from? Do, I have so many issues <laughs> with the Catwoman relationship. It makes no sense. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh... but, but overall, it just kind of resolves back where the Dark Knight resolved, which is fine, I guess. But... I would expect it to develop differently. Yeah, I mean, running counter to, to, the, to the truth will set us free is Robin's arc in the whole movie. I mean, that's the guy who's like, I am going to stand out there with no mask and I'm going to save the day. And then by the end of the movie, he realizes, you know, the institution is broken and I can't follow the rules. And then he becomes, you know, theoretically the new Batman at the end of it. So, I mean, that's the exact yeah. opposite sort of arc See, I think it. I think that that whole thing with Blake being disillusioned with the police department is also something that because there's so much going on in this movie, and so many things are being intercut at the same time. 
I, I had to watch it like four times yeah. before I even understand what he's reacting to. <laughs> and it's at the end when he's trying yeah. to get the children off the bus and he's saying, I'm crossing yeah. the bridge. You Do not shoot me. And then, and then <laughs> the cops mindlessly follow orders and they bust yeah. the bridge down and he's, yo, you killed us all. These children are dead now. So, um, <laughs> yeah, just I, I think that that's another and that's another emotional catharsis that just doesn't really get fulfilled. And he tells the children to get back on the bus. Don't tell them that they're about to get blown up. The guy's like, shouldn't we shouldn't we tell the kids? He's like, no, 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 we can't we oh. have to lie to them. But this is something that Nolan always does, even at the yeah. end of uh, what's the Robin Williams movie? Uh, Insomnia. Yeah. Spoilers for Insomnia ahead. But basically, Hillary Swank's character decides not yeah. to. Reveal the truth that Al Pacino's character killed his partner. His whole his whole sort of overwear is against the truth. Yeah, the Dark Knight is Memento. Super, yeah, Memento <laughs> is that yeah. the, the, lie to yourself. Yeah, spoilers for Memento. <laughs> it's lie to yourself to give yourself purpose. Yes. <laughs> the yeah. Prestige, all about lying. Uh, go on. I'm oh, just, just like saying, lying. Magic tricks oh, oh, in general. Oh, oh. Magic tricks. Yeah. Manipulation sure. of the yeah. truth. Sure. Of okay. Reality. Gotcha. Uh, all right, let's talk about pain. So pain seems to be one of the big themes here. It's something that both connects Bane and Bruce Wayne. So there's nothing in Gotham for for Bruce except pain and tragedy. Everything in his body is scarred. He's pushed his body to its limits. He has no cartilage in his knees. His elbow is all fucked up. Um, there's And then similarly, Bane has a mask on that the pain is so unbearable that he has to have this gas, pump, gas pumped into him via his mask because he was disfigured back in the pit. There's a, a kind of a cool thing I like in that Bane and Batman are kind of these shadow figures in that Batman is came from privilege and Bane was literally born at the bottom of a pit. And, you know, he has that epic quote about being born into darkness and everything. And uh, in, Batman has to kind of go through Bane's pain in order to resurrect himself out of the pit and then go and defeat him. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's just kind of an interesting motif mm-hmm. what, what do you think it's saying though i mean is, is I there anything there well i think that it's saying that even you know batman and this is something i appreciate about the movie is that batman unlike other superheroes you know one of the things that nolan was lauded for for his interpretation was like batman begins was revolutionary because it was like what would it be like if batman was an actual person mm-hmm. what would it be like if his what was his psychological profile actually be like and one of the things about batman being an actual person is that He's got a real physical body that's conducive to pain. And I think that's why him and David Goyer decided to end it the way they did, because he's not a superhero in the sense that he has superpowers. And so even he has to choose to live a life instead of just letting his body decay and ultimately die. But if the point purpose of the movie is, you know, you have to go past your pain, then doesn't it doesn't all right, because he retires at the end. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So I mean I guess it's, he succumbs to it because that's human. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's what I got. Yeah, all right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I do like that, that that it is the only superhero movie I can think of where, you know, the, you have the superhero on a cane through a lot of the movie. You know, that's kind of cool. Yeah. I do like it, but it kind of undoes the when he gets his back broken. I feel like he should start out strong, and then, you know, he gets fucked up. And so he, he starts out weak and then gets yeah. more fucked up. But, yeah. Mm, true. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about so the adaptation of A Tale of Two Cities. Uh, we a lot of this is covered in our What Went Wrong episode, but um, just for the sake of completionism, I want to get through it again. So, A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. There are three main 
overlaps between this movie and that movie. And the reason why I'm even drawing this comparison is because, well, A, Nolan said himself that he drawed heavily from the text, but also at the end during Wayne's quote-unquote funeral, Commissioner Gordon is reading a famous speech from the book. So the first one is obviously social inequality. So the French Revolution is all about, you know, in the book we see an aristocracy abusing the poor, and the film portrays a similar class conflict through Bain's revolution that we only really see hints of. Uh, you know, the, another thing that bothers me is we don't really, and I guess to, to, to Nolan's credit, he didn't need to dramatize a scene in which a rich person is abusing a poor person. You know, there are some there are some lines where right outside the stock exchange, what someone says to a cop. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, there's like a Wall Street guy says to a cop, he says, that's everybody's money in there. And the cop says, really? Mine's only in my mattress. Mm -hmm. And then he says, if you don't stop, that money's going to be worth a lot less. Um, and you know what? Like, as much as I criticize this movie for not really building the world and showing me exactly the abuse that's going on, I think he does a good enough job visually. And I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, they, they definitely contrast, you know, Selena Kyle's lifestyle with, you know, Juno Temple and those characters versus, you know, Bruce's stuff. I mean, I th I really like the first half of this movie and the sort of worldview it, it depicts. I think he does it. And he doesn't need, you know, you know, you know, tons of exposition. He can just do it in a couple. But the one exposition I would shows. want is connecting the class warfare to the Dent Act, because I don't yeah, think that I, that's obvious that's, enough. That's fair. I, I I disagree in with you that uh, in terms of not wanting that scene, I I, I kind of do would have since this movie is such a socio political commentary, I would have liked to have seen more of the general people of Gotham, you know, and how they're living and how this is affecting their lives. Which you know we kind of get a couple a line here or there, but I would have liked to have seen more of that personally. Yeah, it's funny mm -hmm. how I say there's so much going on in this movie, and yet there are certain <laughs> want, things want I want more of. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, if there was an extended edition, I wouldn't say I'd be necessarily excited. Um, so some other things. The third book in the novel is called Track of a Storm. Catwoman says a storm is coming. Uh, so the, the second theme is resurrection. So in A Tale of Two Cities, Dickens frequently uses the phrase recalled to life as a kind of a metaphor that these characters are being brought back from the dead. So at the beginning of the book, one of the main characters is metaphorically brought back to life or recalled to life when he sees his daughter for the first time after a long time in the Bastille. You can liken this to Bruce Wayne being recalled to life when Catwoman steals his fingerprints, forcing him to leave his isolation. So there's another character named Carton that is, quote, in, in A Tale of Two Cities, that is, quote, resurrected when he sacrifices himself for another character. You can liken this to Catwoman, who overcomes her selfishness to save Batman. Uh, there's a part where Carton quotes Lazarus, and uh, although they don't necessarily explicitly call it the Lazarus Pit, the, the prison in the movie, I think that, you know, because the Lazarus Pit was... The way that Ra's al Ghul stayed young, he would like go into that little pit of goo. And I think, and this is one of my favorite things, I think it's a really clever adaptation to change it from literal resurrection to metaphorical resurrection for, for Batman. I, I think that's fucking yeah. clever as shit. No, I love the prison sequence. I actually, uh, I wish... I wish the whole because I think the movie I think the movie falls apart when it abandons uh, Batman and be, and goes back into the city with and follows JGL. But I would much prefer to just focus on Batman getting better in the and the design the, yeah, of that good. is yeah. of that prison is awesome. Uh, just gonna blow through the rest of these. Uh, Catwoman is searching for a clean slate. You can kind of say it's like her quote resurrecting her or redeeming herself. Um, 
even the title The Dark Knight Rises, Rises, Resurrection, uh, even the title, or Bane says The Fire Rises, there's actually chapter 23 is called Fire Rises, and both texts feature a capitalist named Striver, who in the movie is Daggett's partner. Uh, and then the quote that Gordon reads at the end is, I see a beautiful city and a brilliant people rising from its abyss. I see the lives for which I lay down my life, peaceful, useful, prosperous, and happy. I see I hold a sanctuary in their hearts and in the hearts of their descendants generations hence. It is far, far better thing than I that I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. So last, uh, last thing I'm going to bring up with the Tale of Two Cities is doubling. So we all know that the... The text begins with, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. There's this, there's this contrasting between pairs. And in The Dark Knight, and then this happens throughout the book. There is There are two Manettes, two cities, London and Paris. There are two trials. Darnay, the characters Darnay and Carton look the same. And in The Dark Knight Rises, there's two cities, Gotham and Bane's underground. There's Batman and Bane, two League of Shadows alum who deal with pain, one born in privilege, another born in the pit. There's uh, Blake and Batman are two orphans with anger issues. There's very subtle things where they call Blake a hothead throughout the movie. And, uh, yeah, so really, really smart adaptation, um, which I really appreciate. What is this movie trying to say with this sort of, you know, socioeconomic inequality in the city? Like, I mean, because, I mean, Bane's whole thing is proven just to be a ruse. And by giving the city back to the people, it just descends everything into chaos. So is it arguing for just, you know, keep it, keep the status quo, the rich stay rich and the poor stay poor. And this is the equilibrium that is that is necessary. Yeah. Well, Ryan brought up earlier that uh, left wing commentators hate this movie because they see it as (laughs) anti-occupy propaganda. Uh, In fact. So. All right. We're going into the quote politics section. So if you're not into that stuff, stop listening now. (laughs) Um, You know, I I said that I was hoping that the movie wouldn't be political, but I think the kids singing the Star Spangled Banner before the football game makes it Mm. impossible not to think, because they they play the whole song. It makes it impossible to think that there's not some sort of statement being made. Isn't like a football game, like the ultimate, like the the have-nots and the haves are all in the same place? You know, the mayor's Mm. up watching from his box seats, the normal people. From his ivory tower. from his ivory tower. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right. So this is from the book Utopia of Rules by David Graeber. And he says that the movie is basically one long piece of anti-Occupy propaganda. He said Christopher Nolan insists the script was written before the movement even started, uh, that he was really inspired by Dickens' account of the French Revolution. This strikes me as disingenuous. Everyone knows Hollywood scripts are rewritten continually over the course of production, often to the point where they end up looking nothing like the original text. Also, that when, it comes, that when it comes to messaging, even details like where a scene is shot, like, I know, let's have the cops face off with Bane's followers right in front of the New York Stock Exchange. Or minor change of wording can make all the difference, like, let's change take control to occupy. Um, so what do you think? I, I, I think that, especially considering the other... I don't think that this... I, I still don't think that Nolan was really trying to make a politically charged statement here. I think that a lot of what people are complaining about on the left, I think, is just kind of a result of clumsy world building, in my opinion. I kind of do think he was trying to uh, make a political statement. I yeah. Mean, I, I think, it, yeah, it's like it's the corruption inherent in some utopia building ideologies, you know, that are just the, they're they're 
logical end, I think he is kind of making a comment on that kind of stuff. But it's because that the people that his calls to the people create an unruly, dumb mob. And the fact that the world building doesn't make sense is what <laughs> makes it what is what is what makes this reading valid. So let me go on with what Graber says. He says. Is there supposed to be a message we can all take home from this? If there was, it would seem to be something along the lines of this. True, the system is corrupt, but it's all we have. In any way, figures of authority can be trusted if they have first been chastened and endured terrible suffering. True, there is injustice and its victims deserve our sympathy, but keep it within reasonable limits. Charity is much better than addressing structural problems. That way lies madness. Well, I will say the movie I, I don't think is pro figures of authority it's pro batman it's pro this vigilante outside the law the law is still totally corrupt well not uh, really because i mean in that last thing it's it's the police the just the good guys versus the revolutionaries which is weird it is a little weird it, that that does become muddled but at the uh, end, only it, only because in the previous movies the establishment cops were always corrupt there was Wurtz and well, ramirez in the dark knight i and... think i think the difference is, is they're following batman now that's the difference they're right. no longer chasing batman they're following the vigilante's order basically mm. i or, think that is the argument it's not that batman and, and the police are joining up together it's that the police are following batman into battle and i mean what about the reading that that bane and his group is like antifa or antifa or whatever the fuck you know, and well, that didn't so exist basically back it's then. like when push comes to shove, Batman and uh, 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 fucking the cops are like, all right, well, we don't get along usually, but this group of fucking people are tearing <laughs> shit up in the name of, you know, utopia and glory. We got to take care of them. I mean, I think that that kind of rubs people the wrong way, too, because, you know, depending on how you look at that group. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, I think that. That didn't exist in 2012. <laughs> no, it absolutely did. did. Uh, Antifa has been go uh, been around since early 2000s, if not longer. I mean, you know, black block tactics and stuff have been around for forever. But like, I, I knew people in Antifa in at UT when we were there in like 2005. So I mean, it's been around. But I oh. I, I don't know if it was a direct one to one at that point. You're right because they definitely have a higher profile now. But like, like yeah, I didn't know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, um, like, like, like the whole World Trade Organization and stuff, like like the, the, the riots. When was that? That was like 2000, 1999. I mean, like this. God, I was like, on. I was like I 12 remember, years old, yeah. man. I don't remember that shit. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> <All right. laughs> uh, no, I'm not trying to dismiss what you're saying. I just haven't thought about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so one last thing I'll read. So he says, conversely, why does Bane wish to lead the people into a social revolution if he's just going to nuke them all in a few weeks anyway? Again, it's anybody's guess. He says that before you destroy someone, first you must give them hope. So is the message that utopian dreams can only lead to nihilistic violence? Presumably something like that, but it's singularly unconvincing since the plan to kill everyone came first. The revolution was a decorative afterthought. I don't know. I, I'm kind of, when Tommy, you said that it was them writing themselves into a hole. I don't even care if you're Christopher Nolan. The script has to be done in a certain number of weeks because they got to start shooting. I don't know. I, I think that it's just messiness. I do, too. I think I, I think they wrote themselves into a hole. And how do we get out of this? Yeah. Out of this literal <laughs> Lazarus pit? <laughs> yeah. So another conservative or a conservative commentator who really likes it says that it is a bold apologia 
for free market capitalism, one that not only offers a graphic depiction and stinging critique of the tyranny and violence inherent in every radical leftist movement from the French Revolution to Occupy Wall Street, but which also plays homage to those self-reliant, rugged individuals who find redemption in the harsh circumstances of their lives rather than allow those circumstances to mire them in resentment. So that's one perspective. <laughs> Uh, another one says, uh, this is Christian Toto, says, It's impossible not to feel Nolan's disgust at Occupy Wall Street, a movement which the film paints as both incoherent and violent and uh, as both incoherent and a violent courtesy of a class warfare villain armed with nuclear weaponry. I don't, do you think that it really is anti-populist? I, I mean, I think it's Ryan against- says it is. I think it's probably just like he really likes Dickens. I mean, he's whatever, like, sort of British, or he is British. British. He likes Dickens. He wanted to make an epic. He had already talked about terrorism, and even even if Occupy hadn't happened yet, he knew that there was, you know, some a lot of talk about economic inequality in the zeitgeist, and so he probably decided to do A Tale of Two Cities, and then uh, Occupy Wall Street happened. Maybe he thought he could ignore it. Maybe it was just messy from the beginning. Maybe he did change things. I don't know. I mean, it seems like he's against all systems. So, yes, he's against, you know, Bain's, you know, you know, socialist movement. He's against, you know, the police force, this corrupt police force. He's against, you know, I mean, they have the president on and then they, you know, dismiss him. Oh, we're screwed. I mean, he's against all sort of, I think, organizations uh, that try to curb uh, to curb us, I guess. Yeah, I think he, I think it's pro authority. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, like like Batman is not like he's an authority figure for criminals, you know, like that's outside of the law. So like, and I think at the end of the day, he like, that works for him as a, as the status quo is what I get out of it. All right, before we move on, I just want to got to fit this in here. Want to give a shout out to our sponsors over at simple habit. So simple habit is an app that is all about mindfulness and meditation. So if there, are str- if there are things that stress you out about your job, this is an app that is free and has hundreds of meditations available for free and thousands with premium. So it can, meditations can help with specific problems in your life. It's not just teaching you to meditate for the sake of meditating or that it's good for you. This is actually something that has very specific applications. So um, I, I started using this app. Uh, one thing that I struggle with is leaving work at work. Uh, usually after I'd leave work, I would immediately go to some sort of form of entertainment, whether it be video games, Netflix, whatever. But I found that, uh, you know, when you're not, when you're trying not to think about work, it kind of only makes you think about work more. So I started using this simple habit meditation about leaving work at work as kind of a, a bridge between the two things. And I've actually found that it's actually quite helpful. Um, so... They've got over 65,000 five-star iOS reviews. Once again, a lot of the meditations are free. I'm still using the free ones. Um, It's the number one ranked meditation keyword in the iOS app store. So you can get 30% off a premium subscription for the first 50 listeners who uh, go to simplehabit.com slash show me. Once again, that's simplehabit.com slash show me for 30% off premium subscriptions. Uh, So make sure to use the link so you know that they know you're from this podcast. Last time, that's simplehabit.com slash show me. And now back and to the show. Get in the habit of going to simple habit. Hell yeah. <laughs> um, all right. One last thing on this politics thing is that I actually have seen some defenses that say that the movie actually 
is more pro left wing. So another blogger, I found this on BigTallWords.com. I couldn't actually, the, the name of the blogger was not on, but he says, several events in the, uh, the trilogy clearly demonstrate, uh, oh wait, no, that's the wrong one. Oh yeah, so I'm sorry, this is not from BigTallWords.com. So people say it's not right-leaning because they point to, and I think this is a bit of a stretch, but it's only because of the financialization of capitalism and Wayne Enterprises' arms-dealing wing that Bain is able to take over the city. And the fact that the orphans have to go underground for work is evidence enough that it's not defending the system. You could argue that he tried to put some balance in there. I don't know. <laughs> Would you, do you buy it, Ryan? <laughs> you don't buy it, Ryan? Uh, no, I don't buy that. <laughs> okay. All right, let's move into the mailbag. So hit us up, voicemails 213-534-8807 or 21ElfGut07. Let's see, we got uh, one from a we got one from Tommy about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Go, Tommy. What's up, Wisecrack? Tommy here. Um, so I wanted to revisit again uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the scene with Rick Dalton talking to the younger girl on the the, the Western TV set. And uh, I really agreed with what the, the viewer last week had to say, or I guess the caller last week had to say about, um, you know, how the little girl was supposed to personify Disney and Tarantino's Rick Dalton and uh, the contrast between Disney movies and uh, more smaller films in the industry. But I think there's another layer to what he was putting in there that you don't really fully grasp until the end of the movie. Uh, when Rick kind of goes into detail regarding the synopsis of the book, he talks about how it's a Buckaroo Bronco, who, you know, was once a very successful at his career, and then he falls off his horse and gets injured, and he feels like he's being less and less useful as, as time goes on. And, you know, at first glance, you're supposed to think it's, it's Rick is supposed to, you know, be, be representative of this character in the book. And, uh, he sees himself as being more and more and less useful throughout his career. Uh, but at the end of the movie, you're supposed to look again at that story and actually see that it's Cliff's career and Cliff's character who, uh, personifies that character in the book. Um, you know, throughout, the entire movie, we see that, you know, obviously Cliff was a very successful, you know, stuntman. And uh, as time's gone on, you know, he's kind of ruined some relationships. He soured some relationships. Relationship. He's a couple years uh, older than uh, Rick Dalton. I'm going to just cut him off just because it's a long voicemail. But thank you for thank you for the note, Tommy. I think that's interesting. I think a lot a lot of people have mentioned or do you have anything to say about that other Tommy? <laughs> no, I, I think that's a I think that's a fair reading. I mean, I, I there's definitely a deliberate parallel between Pitt and and DiCaprio's character in that movie. They're both sort of suffering from the same sort of things. Um, and I, I it is interesting that you know uh, Pitt's character I, I'm forgetting names, but Pitt's character you know his career is sort of over, and now he's sort of latching on to you know Rick's career, uh, which is also slowly fading. So it's. Uh... Someone brought up to me. And I really like this, that just like everything else that happened in Rick Dalton's career, uh, Cliff is actually the one who kills most of the Mansons. Oh, yeah. but, but Rick gets the credit. Yeah, Cliff just, is the hero in the movie. But right, yeah. Cliff is the hero, but Rick gets the credit <laughs> yeah. from the Polanski residence, just like in everything yeah. that uh, has done. All right, let me take a look at these other voicemails, see how long they are. Yeah, all right, this one's from Juan about District 9. Go, Juan. 
Show me the meaning, Wisecrack crew. My name is Warren. I'm here to call in about your District 9 podcast. Now, I was very interested in that Austin or whoever mentioned the Starship Trooper reference with the bugs in District 9. Now, we all know a good bug is a dead bug, so, you know, always remember to make the good bugs dead. But what's very interesting is this thing of us in space and that we will always almost seem to be consumed by this subjugation of the aliens or the other. And with us trying to go to space with Space Force and everything, we need to really be careful about how we present ourselves to almost other alien species or we're going to have a repeat of the colonization of the Americas, how America treated the Native Americans uh, in the form of the federal government. Uh, just was wondering what you thought, think about that, and uh, thank you. What do you think, Ryan? Dude, I am so on board with him. I have <laughs> no idea. We have got to be careful. Uh, like, you know, everyone says, like, if we see a fucking ship somewhere, don't go to it. Like, you know, we have, like the odds are they are more advanced, and one, we are ants to them. You know, and I don't want to be an ant. I don't want to be stepped on in my lifetime. Let's just leave everyone yeah, alone and go explore the galaxy from a distance. I would also hope that if we're ants, maybe we're just not even worth colonizing. Mm. Like, what are they going to want with our Earth? You know, Dude, sometimes it's just fun to step on an ant pile. OK, sometimes it's just like, hey, take my kid out for uh, for target practice. Shoot that planet over there. You know? I have the the Star Trek, you know, naive hope that you know intergalactic species can just get together and you know absolutely work it out. not. It is doggy <laughs> this dog utopian. Alien, alien out there, dude. We are fucked. We are fucked. <laughs> All right, we're gonna go into the mailbag. Uh, this is the emails. Hit us up at movies at wisecrack.co. That's .co, not .com. This first one is from Ryan, actually about the Dark Knight Rises. So. I don't remember leaving this. Uh, different Ryan. He says, in past oh, okay. videos, you guys have talked about how The Dark Knight Rises fails to expand on the concept of the noble lie because the story seems to end in the same place that The Dark Knight ends with the people of Gotham lied to that someone died to save their city. However, I think the film makes the argument that the noble lie won't last, but the truth will. At the end of the film, they erect a statue of Batman in City Hall, not Bruce Wayne, and the only people at Bruce's funeral are people who knew that Bruce Wayne was Batman. So as far as the city of Gotham is concerned, we're led to believe that they didn't know Bruce Wayne was Batman. So to them, Batman died to save the city. To add to the tale of Two Cities Illusions too, in a way, Batman died so that Bruce Wayne can live his life, the same way Sidney Carton dies at the end of two, Tale of Two Cities so that Darnay can live his life. Curious to hear your guys' thoughts on that take about the ending. So, Ryan, I really like what you said about the Tale of Two Cities illusion. I think that's a really, another really interesting kind of doubling thing going on there. I, I don't understand exactly what he's saying, though, about how, in the sense that, yes, it is true that Batman was the hero and they erect that statue, but if it is that Batman died for us, that is the meaning behind the statue, then it is still a lie, yeah. but I guess it's up for interpretation. Well, it's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the lie. <laughs> but he did save the city. He, I, I, yeah. <laughs> would, would you prefer he didn't? <laughs> I mean, 
No, I'm just saying that that would be the truth. Instead of mm-hmm. having, instead of idolizing Harvey Dent, they now idolize Batman, sure. who's the real no, hero. No, I agree. That's why it's mixed. On, on the one hand, they yeah. are idolizing the true, the true hero, but on the other hand, it is based on a lie that Batman is dead, which he is not. Yeah. So it's just very muddled. <laughs> yeah. All right, uh, we got another one on District 9. This is from John. He says, A major point of discussion among fans ever since District 9 came out has been the possibility of a sequel. The movie ends with Christopher promising Vickis that he'll return in three years, allowing for the potential sequel, at least as far as the plot is concerned. Do you think that there should be a sequel? If yes, what do you think it should be about? Personally, I don't think there should be a sequel to District 9. First of all, the film is an allegory about apartheid, and there's just so much that you can stretch an allegory before it becomes tiresome. I don't see what more they can say about the topic in the second film. Although I would love to be proven wrong from John. What do you think? Look, I like Neil Blomkamp, but I think leave leave District 9 alone. I mean, they... they I because think... it's his only good movie? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, I kind of like Chappie. You do? Kinda, yeah. Okay. Uh, so, and uh, Elysium is okay. It's fine. No, it's, it's not. <laughs> um, I, uh, uh, <laughs> I would actually like to see District 10 because a District 9 is only good movie, so District 10 seems like Mm-mm. it would also be good. Also, oh, yeah, because um, that logic no, always holds no, up no, with no, movies. No, 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 no. <laughs> I completely understand leaving the masterpiece alone because it isn't a masterpiece, and I love how it ends with him just making that little tin fl- flower, and I like the open-endedness to that. So it is perfect, but I would say selfishly, Bring on District 10. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of at this stage in my life where I'm just like, bring on whatever I'm curious. Yeah. I mean, I mean I, I've just kind of got this space in my head where even if I don't really like The Dark Knight Rises, The Dark Knight is still one of my favorite films. You can't fuck it up for me. I mean, yeah, I, I, if District 10 is terrible, if, if they do make a District 10, that, I don't think that affects District 9 at all. Um, I mean, it's just a total, I don't think there's any sort of legacy that it's tarnishing. Um Yeah, I mean, in terms of what do I think it would be about and the fact that apartheid is, like, so specific that it can't – I mean, I think that, first of all, District 9 ends with them being just relocated to a different camp. And, you know, not to get too specific about political things going on, but, I mean, you know, there's still a lot of displacement going on in the world. So there is still more stuff to comment about. I don't think that, you know, what District 9 was talking about is no longer a problem globally, so it's not worth talking about anymore. So I I think that – if it wanted to continue with that allegory, it probably could. Yeah, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure what new it could say though. I think that's. The I think there's, there's I think plenty I... to say. I mean, you know, like like I loved how focused the first one was just yeah. on this one guy's experience in this like you know three day period. You could totally make an epic version of District Nine. I feel like you know, uh, uh, or make just a, in a different genre because w- without using the mockumentary. Uh, uh, gimmick i feel like there's a lot more you could do in that world yeah all right this last one is from emmett so uh emmett this is about in the mood for love which is a movie very dear to my heart very obscure movie that we did on my request so he says i just listened to your podcast on in the mood for love in which it was mentioned by both jared and austin how the movie was more understandable as you've aged although i am still in university i thought you might find it interesting to note that though my view is different since in modern orthodox and orthodox judaism it is custom for men and women not to touch at all unless married or family i didn't grow up that way but since making the lifestyle change like in the mood for love i could imagine how every subtle gesture or glance seems amplified and significant like in the movie 
The commitment to faith and tradition is seen as something we are proud of, though it is certainly a more conservative stance. So when I was considering the characters, I don't think that the only tragedy is they can't be fulfilled romantically, but they are failed failed by social conventions like marriage and never get the reward for the hard work. I have a very favorable view of not having any physical contact outside of family or marriage with the opposite sex, and yet the plight of the characters still pulls at my heartstrings. From Emmett. Thank you for sharing, Emmett. It's nicely I, I, said. I, nicely yeah, said. I love I love any personal experiences uh, that relate to this movie. All right, so send us some emails, movies at wisecrack.co. Send us an email, 213, I'm sorry, voicemail, 213-534-8807 or 21ElfHut07. Uh, we'll be back next week. want to thank Tommy and Ryan for joining me. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Uh, don't forget to send Austin a tweet uh, at Austin underscore H-A-Y-D-E-N. Um, really happy that he's doing okay, but it was a it was a scare for a little bit, and this podcast would greatly suffer without him. We're thinking Just, about you, Austin. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right, that's it for now. Oh, where can we find you guys on the internet, Ryan? Oh, I release uh, comedy shorts on my uh, uh, on my channel, Ryan Shorts, every week, and then I also every once in a while you can find me on the Funhouse channel playing video games. It's fun. Rock and roll. Tommy? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at TC4949. Uh, I'll see you guys next time. Peace. Goodbye from Hollywood, California. Save Batman. Peace. <laughs>